0: Well, uh, we've been in a section of Revelation that's been focused on seven uh, trumpets, seven uh, uh, judgments that are are marked by this symbol of these uh, seven trumpets being blown. And uh, the seven trumpets of Revelation are based on the seven trumpets of Joshua. If you know that story, when the people of Israel came out of Egypt and were going to the promised land, they came first to the city of Jericho. For seven days, the Israelites marched around the city of Jericho and the priests blew seven trumpets. For the first six days, these trumpet blasts were warnings that the destruction of Jericho was coming. But on the seventh day, when the trumpet sounded, the city was destroyed. Likewise, what we saw back in Revelation 8 and 9 uh, was the first six trumpets of warning. God brings plagues on the world, partial judgments. These judgments are meant to warn the world that God is going to destroy the world. But like in Joshua's day, when the seventh trumpet sounds, there are no more warnings. The end has come. And in our text today, we hear the blast of the seventh trumpet. So with that, let's read Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19. And since these words are breathed out by God and come with the very authority of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, if you're able, would you please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? Revelation 11, starting in verse 15. The Holy Spirit says, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to You, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for You have taken Your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but Your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding Your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear Your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple there were flashes of lightning rumblings peals of thunder an earthquake and heavy hail the grass withers the flower fades but the word of our god will stand forever you may be seated So this week, I was watching a TV show, and it occurred to me that the story that they were telling in this show is a story that's actually been told many times, Uh, and maybe you've heard a story like this before. Uh, It was a story of a group of people who were essentially kind of living in a bubble, and they live under a powerful authority who gives them rules that they're supposed to follow, Uh, Most people go about their daily lives obediently, not thinking too much about it because this is the only world they've ever known. Uh, But then one day, the main character meets a rebel who gives them a clue that there might be something outside of this bubble uh, that the powers that be are not telling you about. So the main character goes on a quest to uncover the truth about the world outside. Uh, But the more that they ask questions and seek for answers, uh, they they threaten those in authority. Those in authority don't want the people inside the bubble to find out the truth about uh, the better world outside because it would be a threat to their power. But in the end, the hero breaks loose of the authority's control and finds freedom in the outside world. Now, like I said, some version of this story has been told over and over, in fact, I would imagine that if that, if that uh, story sounds familiar to you, uh, that you probably have a, a different movie or book or TV show than even the person uh, next to you because it's a story that, that we tell a lot. And I got to thinking, why is this type of story a story that humans tend to tell? And it occurred to me that one of those reasons is that this story is basically the lie that the serpent told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. You live in this little bubble that seems great. It's all you've ever known. You're living under this God who has given you rules that you have to follow. But then one day, this serpent comes along and tells you that there's more to life than this world that you've known. God doesn't want you to know the truth because if you find out the truth and rebel, you'll be a threat to his power but if you will just break free from his oppressive reign, you'll finally find freedom. Well, what's so powerful about Scripture, what's so powerful about the truth of Jesus, is that the gospel takes this lie, this deceitful narrative, and actually turns the story on its head. The fact is that the world that we've known, is not a world of the obedient. It's a world of rebels. And the truth, there is a truth that we need to find out, but the truth is not that there's this life outside of God. The truth is that God wants to give you eternal life. God isn't trying to suppress the truth. God wants everyone in the world to know about this truth because true freedom is not found in being in rebellion to the king. True freedom does not consist in breaking free from the king's authority. True freedom is found when Jesus reigns. And what we have in Revelation 11, 15-19 is a glimpse of what will happen when Jesus comes to reign. John says in verse 19, as we just read, that there was lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder and an earthquake and heavy hail. Uh, We've seen these signs before in Revelation, and we're going to see them again before the book's over. These symbolize that God's terrifying judgment has come to an end. The king has come. This age is over, and a new age is beginning. Uh, But this passage is not just... An explanation about what will happen when Jesus returns. This passage is a scene of celebration because the best thing that can happen for all of creation is for King Jesus to reign. The message of this passage to us is simple and it is powerful, and it is that the King is coming. The King is coming. And we'll see much more about the return of Christ in later chapters of Revelation. But in these verses, I want us to see two major events that will be celebrated when King Jesus comes. The first event that will be celebrated when the King comes is that the kingdom of the world will be eclipsed by the kingdom of God. The kingdom of the world will be eclipsed by the kingdom of God. Look with me again at verses 15 through 17. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. Uh, So in this scene, John sees this heavenly call and response of worship. There's loud voices in heaven that declare that a regime change has taken place. The kingdom of God has come to replace the kingdom of the world. And then the 24 elders, who we saw earlier in Revelation represent the saints in heaven, hear, uh, they hear this, and when they do, they respond by bowing before God and giving Him thanks. You know, In uh, Sunday school this morning, uh, we were in uh, Mark uh, 11 and 12, and we saw the, the triumphal entry. Uh, And how on Palm Sunday, Jesus uh, entered, the week that he was going to be crucified, he entered into the city of Jerusalem and people were shouting, Hosanna. And they thought that in that moment, Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom in its fullness right then and there. Uh, And that wasn't the case. He was coming into Jerusalem that week to die. But this scene in Revelation eleven fifteen 15 through 17, this is the hosanna they thought they were saying. This praise is the celebration that Jesus has come to reign. That Jesus has come to establish the kingdom of God in its fullness. The kingdom of the world that those people in that, during that first day of Holy Week were so oppressed by and tired of. The kingdom of the world that they were longing to be broken free from. Uh, that kingdom of the world has been eclipsed now by the kingdom of of God. We hear the heavenly Hosanna as Jesus has come to reign. Uh, the heavenly voices refer to the kingdom of the world. This is the kingdom, like I said, that dominated the earth in the time of Jesus. It's the kingdom that dominated the world in the time of John and these seven churches. It's the kingdom that currently dominates the earth. The kingdom of the world doesn't refer to any one government or location or time period. It's a principle that has been at work in every human society ever since Adam and Eve fell into sin in the Garden of Eden. It's a kingdom whose citizens are those who dwell on the earth, as we've seen in Revelation already. It's a kingdom that's attractive. It's a kingdom that's wealthy. It's a kingdom that promises prosperity to its citizens, but it is a kingdom that is opposed to God in rebellion to his reign. It's a kingdom through which Satan is at work. It's a kingdom that is beastly, as Revelation describes. It's a kingdom that is immoral and arrogant and blasphemous, and it's a kingdom that makes war on the saints. The kingdom of the world is, is all around us. But on the last day, the kingdom of the world will be eclipsed by the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is here now partially. Jesus announced in Mark 1:15: the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near, it's it's here. He, he said the kingdom of God was here because the king was here. Furthermore, Everyone who trusts in Jesus is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven today. Uh, John said back in Revelation 1.6 that Jesus has made his people a kingdom. But the kingdom of God is not yet here in its fullness. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to Christ, as the author of Hebrews says. Satan is still the god of this world. Today, the world and its systems and its governments do not submit to Jesus as king. And we who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven live on this earth as sojourners and exiles waiting for the day that we finally get to go home. Jesus said that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts small but it grows, and one day it becomes a tree so large that birds can make nests in its branches. If the kingdom of God came in seed form with Jesus' first coming, Revelation 11:15 shows us the day when the kingdom of God will arrive in its full. Form. This is the day that we who are citizens of the kingdom of God have been waiting for. This is the day that God will put every last enemy of Jesus Christ under his feet. This is the day that Jesus Christ, the, the son of David, the promised Messiah, will sit on his throne on earth and rule over the world forever and ever. And the elders respond to the heavenly voices with thanksgiving, celebrating that God has taken his great power and begun to reign. Of course, the eternal God has always been sovereign over his creation, but as I said, God has allowed the kingdom of the world and the God of this world to reign for a time. During that time, creation has been groaning, waiting for God to redeem creation So it is, this day is a celebration when the eternal Lord God Almighty takes His great power and begins to reign fully. If you have never trusted in Jesus, if you've never uh, placed your faith in Him to save you from your sins, if you don't follow Christ, uh, the Bible describes you as a citizen of the kingdom of this world. And I think that's basically the type of way we all think about our citizenship um, apart from Christ. You know, I'm a citizen of Texas. I'm a citizen of the United States of America. I'm a citizen of Earth, even. But you need to know that this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, will not last. The clock is ticking on this world and its systems and its governments and its prosperity and its opportunity and its flourishing, you need to know there's something more than just the kingdom of this world. There's something more than just what this world has to offer. There's a greater kingdom coming. It's a kingdom where evil will be eradicated And justice will reign. It's a kingdom whose citizens get to delight in God for all of eternity. And when you become a citizen of the kingdom of God, you can know this God today. If you find yourself today as a citizen of the kingdom of this world, you need to know you today can become a citizen of the kingdom of God. Like we just celebrated, Dan placing his faith in Christ, becoming a citizen of the kingdom of God. That can be true of you. You need to know that God created humans to be under his rule. But we have all rebelled. We've committed cosmic treason against God. And for that, we deserve God's wrath and judgment. But King... Jesus did the unthinkable. The king came to take the punishment that we deserved for our rebellion. And he rose from the dead, conquering sin and death. And now God has highly exalted him and seated him upon the throne of heaven. And he will reign forever and ever as king of all. And that king who was punished for your rebellion That King who will reign forever and ever is inviting you to come and be a citizen of His kingdom. You can become a citizen of the kingdom of God if if you will admit that you have rebelled against God, that you've sinned against Him. You can become a citizen of His kingdom by trusting in Jesus to save you from your sins and by bowing to Jesus as your King. If you have any questions about how to become a citizen of the kingdom of God, how to come to know Jesus, I would love to talk to you afterward and uh, answer any questions you have, pray with you about that. Christians, as we look at this future, let this passage be a warning to us. Don't get too comfortable in the kingdom of this world. Don't invest too much in this kingdom. Don't tie your hopes for prosperity and joy to this world and its systems. Don't let your identity and your purpose be tied up in the kingdom of the world. Remember that this kingdom will not last. Instead, live for the kingdom to come. Store up treasure in heaven. Devote yourself to helping citizens of the kingdom of the world become citizens of the kingdom of God. This passage should be a warning to us, but may this passage also be an encouragement to us if you feel homeless in this world it's because you should feel homeless here we're not home yet when we see wickedness in the world it's easy to become discouraged we see unrighteous governments not only all throughout the world but we see unrighteousness in our country at every level of government Uh, We see unrighteousness in structures and systems. We see unrighteousness in markets and in cultures. But we can take comfort knowing that one day Jesus will reign forever. One day we will be home. In the meantime, we as Christians will find ourselves occupying different spaces within the kingdom of this world. So let the future coming of the king shape the way that you conduct yourself as a citizen of the kingdom of God, living as a sojourner within the kingdom of the world. On the one hand, because we serve the king, we are called to be faithful to him, to be an influence for good as sojourners and exiles. But on the other hand, we must remember that our hope is not that we are ever going to transform the kingdom of the world. Our hope is that King Jesus is going to return and he will establish his kingdom. The kingdom of the world will be eclipsed by the kingdom of God. The second event that will be celebrated when the king comes is that the king will judge the faithless and the faithful the king will judge the faithless and the faithful. In verse 18, the 24 elders declare this, The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth the elders make their declaration of thanksgiving because Christ has returned to bring about God's final judgment. We'll see this moment of judgment in detail at the end of Revelation 20, but in this glimpse of the final judgment, the elders describe how God will repay both the faithless and the faithful, those who do not trust in Christ and those who do trust in Christ. The faithless will receive wrath, the faithful will receive reward. The faithless will receive wrath. The the final judgment is a time of wrath for the enemies of God, rebels against the king. These first few words of verse 18 echo Psalm 2. In fact, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 2. Got to study this passage together a little over a year ago. I want to refresh your memory on a few of the verses in it. Look with me at Psalm 2 and the first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So David is writing this psalm, and he sees the kingdom of the world raging. The nations are plotting how they can break themselves free from the rule of God And his Christ. But then look how the psalm goes on in verses 4 through 6. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. And terrify them in his fury saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So God responds to the raging of the nations. He laughs because they're so foolish to think that they could ever overthrow God's authority. Ultimately, God's response to the raging of the nations is His Christ, the anointed King who will sit on His throne on God's holy hill and judge the nations. He will repay their raging with His wrath. Let's go back now to Revelation 11. What John sees in Revelation eleven eighteen 18 is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. The elders declare that the nations did, in fact, rage, but God sets his anointed king, Jesus Christ, on his throne to reign forever and ever. And Christ repays their raging with wrath. God's judgment for unbelievers is also described here as the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth. In Jeremiah 51, God promised that he would bring his wrath on Babylon, uh, the literal nation of Jeremiah's day that eventually in Revelation is picked up as an image for the kingdom of the world. Jeremiah 51, 25, God says this to Babylon, Behold, I am against you, O destroying mountain, declares the Lord, which destroys the whole earth. I will stretch out my hand against you and roll you down from the crags and make you a burnt mountain. The kingdom of the world at present is destroying the whole earth. But when Jesus brings his final judgment, he will destroy that which is destroying the earth. Today, the nations rage against God and against His anointed King Jesus. They've raged since the fall, and they're going to continue to rage until this moment when Jesus returns. The world, its citizens, its systems want to break free from God's authority. God's standard of righteousness is scoffed at, God's design for humanity is rejected. But when King Jesus returns, he will bring his wrath upon the nations. Do you live your life like Jesus really is coming? Do you live your life like Jesus really is going to come and judge sin? Are you letting yourself Remain in the sin that Jesus is going to bring his wrath upon? Hebrews 10:26 and 27 says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. In a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. We've already seen in the early part of Revelation how many of the churches who received this book needed to repent of ongoing, deliberate sin. This passage was a reminder to them that Jesus is going to bring his wrath upon ongoing, deliberate sin. There's going to be destroying. There's going to be wrath. There's going to be judgment. And Jesus gives this image to John. John writes it and gives it to these churches that they might see the coming judgment on sin and give up their sin. Let go of it. Let go of that which Jesus is going to bring His judgment upon. Give it up and repent. And bow to King Jesus. It's a reminder they needed to hear It's a reminder that we need to hear as well. If it really is true that the King is coming, if it really is true that Jesus is going to return to judge, and if you are living in ongoing, deliberate sin against God, Jesus is calling you today to repent. Let it go. Give it up. And turn to Jesus, who wants to save you from your sin And show you mercy and grace and kindness. Because the faithless will receive wrath. But the faithful will receive reward. If you repent and you place your faith in Jesus and trust in him, become a citizen of his kingdom, become his servant's, this is the future you have to look forward to. The final judgment will be a time of reward for the group that these 24 elders describe as the servants of God. The, the servants of God are those who have trusted in Jesus, who have faith in Jesus, to save them from their sins. Uh, they say here that these servants fear the name of of the Lord. To fear the name of the Lord is to live for God's reputation above all others. Uh, the servants of God are those who care most about bringing God glory and they want to avoid those things that would bring reproach on His name. Uh, so, this rewarding is something that's talked about all throughout Scripture and there's different aspects to it. Uh, this rewarding will, in part, involve rewards based on how. Uh, Believers live their lives in the present. Jesus says that those who pray and fast and give in secret will be rewarded by their Father in heaven. Uh, Jesus calls his disciples to live in such a way that they store up treasures in heaven. Uh, Paul talks about how those who minister in an eternally significant way will receive a reward on the day of the Lord. But the greatest rewards that God's servants will receive on that day are the rewards that Christ has earned for us. They're the rewards that Christ has promised to all those who, who conquer, as we've seen throughout Revelation. All, all those who persevere in trusting Christ all the way to the end. We'll eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. We will not be hurt by the second death. We will receive authority over nations. And we will be pillars in the temple of God. These are rewards that Jesus purchased for us at the cross that we received through faith in Him. And best of all, God's servants will receive the reward of delighting in God's presence forever. Look at verse 19 and what John sees. Then God's temple in heaven was opened. And the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. In the Old Testament, God manifested his presence on earth with his people in a temple, a building. But the Bible teaches that the physical temple on earth was just a replica of the heavenly temple of God's presence. And on that last day, heaven will come down to earth. In fact, God will create a new heaven And a new earth, and God and Christ will be the temple in the new creation because God will dwell with his people for all of eternity. The Ark of the Covenant is significant to the final judgment for a couple of reasons. Inside the Ark of the Covenant were the tablets on which God wrote the Ten Commandments, the Ark contains God's law. And God judges all people according to his perfect law. The raging nations and the destroyers of the earth receive God's wrath and destruction because they stand condemned by God's law. But on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat. On the day of atonement, the high priest was to take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the mercy seat to make atonement for God's people. God's servants receive God's reward, even though they too violated God's law and ought to stand condemned. But they receive reward because the lamb who was slain has atoned for their sins by his blood. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and of calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The greatest rewards we will receive on that day come through our faith in the blood of Jesus that has saved us and atoned for our lawbreaking uh, one last observation i want to make in this text i want us to see that both small and great will be rewarded back in revelation 3:8 jesus told the church in philadelphia i know your works behold i have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. You know, as a church, we can look at ourselves and and be discouraged that we're not as big as we'd like to be, or maybe we're not very influential. As an individual Christian, you may think that you're really not making that much of an impact compared to others, or that your ministry doesn't really matter, but you need to know that if you trust in Jesus, you will be rewarded on that day, no matter how small or great you may be. If you are in Christ, you have been adopted as his child, and on that day, you will receive the full inheritance that God has stored up for his children. On that day, the king will judge the faithless and the faithful. The faithless will receive wrath, but the faithful will receive reward. The king is coming. True freedom is not found outside of his reign, but under his reign. True life is not found apart from God, but in Him. So may we live today like King Jesus really is coming. Don't live for the kingdom of the world. Live for the kingdom of God. Don't give yourself to things that Jesus is bringing His wrath upon. Instead, live today in light of the reward that Jesus has purchased for His people. He is worthy, as we saw in Revelation 5. Because he was slain, and by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and every nation, and he has made us a kingdom and priests to our God, and we, with him, will reign on the earth. As we come to the Lord's table this morning, we do a number of things that Point us to what we've seen in the passage that we've been in this morning. As we come to the table, the Bible says we remember. We remember Jesus' death that purchased our eternal reward. We remember Jesus' death for our law breaking. Uh, the Bible says that we also participate in the body and blood. We renew our faith in the death of Christ alone to save us from our sins. The Bible also teaches that that we commune at the Lord's table. We commune with Jesus, who is present with us as his temple today. We also commune with one another, our our fellow citizens of the kingdom of God, because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. We also proclaim as we come to the table. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And at this table, we anticipate the day that the king comes again. And the kingdom of God eclipses the kingdom of the world. Because Jesus said in Matthew 26, 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So this sacred time at the Lord's table is for believers who have rested all their hope On the death and resurrection of Christ. So, if you're not yet a believer, we would ask that you refrain from partaking until you come to faith in Christ and then joyfully partake along with the body of Christ. We encourage those of you who are believers to examine your hearts so that you can partake in a worthy manner. If your heart is harboring any ongoing deliberate sin, we would ask you to refrain until you can come freely to partake. Uh, but if you are a, a member of the body of Christ, Jesus invites you to his table. Uh, this is not just a meal for our local body, uh, but a meal for the global body of Christ. So if you're a baptized member of a gospel-preaching church, uh, then uh, we would welcome you to come and partake with us. Uh, in a moment, I'm going to pray And then we'll sing a song during that time. As you're ready, you can come forward and receive the elements uh, from the table. And then we would ask that you take them back to your seat and hold them so that we can all partake together. Let's pray together. Father, as we bow our heads now, we're reminded how Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. We bow in reverence and respect and awe and adoration for the person of Christ and the words of Christ and the cross of Christ. And Lord, as we worship you around the table now, we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit in a fresh way that our our worship in this moment would bring you honor and genuine comfort to our souls. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.